All right, welcome, uh, welcome to the PhD podcast today. Jason and I are are thrilled to have uh, Laura Saint Germain for our nineteenth episode, all the way from McMaster University. Laura, thanks for thanks for hopping on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm jazzed to be here. Awesome. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us today. It's uh, Friday, March fifth, now, twenty twenty one. So we're almost a, a full year into uh, COVID now, and all of us as PhD students still navigating through. Uh, the COVID situation, but hopefully things are taking a turn for the better now. But thanks again, Laura, for being on. Cool. So Laura, uh, can you tell us a little about yourself and, and basically your journey to, to where you are right now? Yeah. So I did my undergrad and my master's degree at the University of Ottawa. And my life plan ever since I was little was to be a physiotherapist. So I was always planning on applying to physio right out of my undergrad. And I did that, but I didn't get into physio the first time around. So my plan was, okay, I'll do a research master's, reapply in two years. And once I started my research master's, I quickly realized that physio was not what I wanted to do and that I really loved research. And then I quickly made the decision that I was interested in pursuing a PhD. That's awesome. Um, So... Laura, in terms of uh, in terms of pretty much like the article that you sent us, right? We'll we'll start there. Um, yeah. So the the article you sent us was by was by Keith Loesch, uh, Taylor Buchanan, and Matthew Miller, uh, and it was entitled "Underpowered and Overworked: Problems with Data Analysis and Motor Learning Studies." Uh, this was a it's a very well cited article. Um, why why did you uh, why why did you choose this article, and and how does it pertain to your specific research interests? Yeah, so I picked this article because it has been so, it's really gotten me thinking about these issues that we have, not only in motor learning, but in research in general. And when I did my comprehensive exams, Dr. Lose was actually one of my committee members. So my whole question from him was around statistics, methods, and motor learning. And this was one of those papers that he provided to me for my question. And it just really got me thinking. And a lot of the other articles that he sent me were related to power and how one of them is like 95% of research findings are false. And um, it just like drove me more to want to be doing good research and trying to make sure that I'm not falling into these pitfalls that have already been Um, established five years ago. This paper was published in 2016, but there's still some shortcomings in many fields. And so it's really informed how I'm trying to plan my research and make sure that I'm doing well-powered and informed uh, experiments. So Laura, just, I guess, focusing more on like the motor learning literature itself, uh, what are some sources of bias that might be influencing those results that we read about in the motor learning literature? And then do you have any suggestions on how we can address some of those? Yeah. So I know that you specifically asked about motor learning, but I think just in general, the hugest source of bias that we're going to have is publication bias, is that it's very difficult to publish null findings. And so you're already going to be getting inflated effects because only the successful experiments are being published. 
So in a way that I think that we can go about addressing these is that we need to be thinking about these potential null results from the outset. So we need to think of a way that if we do get null results, how can we then make these results informative? Because we often fall into this loophole that, okay, our results are null, therefore there's no difference. These groups are the same. Do whatever you want. But that isn't actually something that you can draw from our frequentist statistics. You have to do some sort of test of equivalence to make a decision if this difference is so small that it's negligible and we don't care. And then you can say that it is the same. So I think that setting up your experiment from the outset to allow yourself to test these different possibilities is a way that we can address this. Then I also think that people pre-registering their work can help address this or doing registered reports. So what a registered report is, is if you, you would write your literature review and you would write your methods, you would submit that to a journal. They would do a first round of peer review. You'd get your comments, address the comments, and then the journal will give you an in-principle acceptance where they say, if you follow everything that you said that you did, we will publish this paper regardless of the results. And that is becoming more and more common, more journals are offering that. So I think that that is going to be the number one way to get around publication. Well, I don't want to say get around, but address publication bias. Huh, that's really interesting. I've actually never yeah. heard of a, a journal that's done that before. So you submit uh, methods, is that anything else you submit besides literature, that? Literature review and methods. Literature review and methods. Oh, I've never actually, I've never actually heard that. That's actually- So does it, so- does it go through the peer review process like after you also submit like the full? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So you do your peer review of just your literature re review and your methods. And then after you collect your data, you would then do another round of peer review of your results and discussion and conclusion. Got it. So Laura, as, as sort of a kind of a follow-up question, then that was really good information. We appreciate you sharing that. What would an ideal study design look like for a motor learning study? And it can be sort of any, any topic of interest. So I think that where the motor learning literature often suffers is that our designs are just so complicated. We end up with so many different groups. We end up with so many different outcome variables. And you're just creating so much complexity. So I think that uh, something that we need to start thinking about doing, and this was something that my advisor told me about that really opened my eyes, was you need to be designing the most simple experiments you can to really get at this question and not be getting lost in all these data that let's say that you have three outcome measures, you find an effect in one, but not the other two. Now you're getting like mixed results from your one experiment. So what does this really mean? So I think that it would be great to just try to get everything down to two group or two condition designs. Ideally, everything would be within, but in motor learning, that's often not possible. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, it, so in a lot of our, in a lot of our um, studies, we use retention and transfer tests, um, which is pretty significant in our field. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes the, uh, they may result in inconsistent analyses. So some include both um, in the same ANOVA while others use separate ANOVAs. 
What's the purpose behind doing either or? Because I know there's a good uh, mix of both. Um, and are there benefits for doing one over the other? So it depends on your research question and what you actually want to be drawing conclusions and comparisons between. So if you are interested in, is there an effect at retention? Yes or no. Is there an effect at transfer? Yes or no. And you only care about them individually, then you can do them in separate ANOVAs. But if you're interested in comparing the two, then they need to be included in the same ANOVA. So let's say that you have them separate and you find an effect in transfer, but you don't find an effect in retention. You can't actually say that the transfer test was better than the retention test because you haven't tested that in your statistics. If you want to be able to make this comparison across tests, then it needs to be included as a factor in one ANOVA. So I, it really comes down to your research question and what you're interested in studying. Got it. Yeah, that's... That's a good answer. Yeah, I'm always I'm always um, intrigued by that when I when especially when when I read when I read those uh, those papers um, and also well do those studies too. So it's kind of like that's uh, good. It's a good thing to think about. So, Laura, kind of a follow up question to that. So, if you were to teach an undergraduate motor learning course, how would you design like the statistical portion? Or, like, what sort of points would you emphasize to them? Um. That's a really good question. And I think that this touches on a huge issue is that our statistics training is so poor all around. Yeah. So in an ideal world, if I was teaching, I would want like a statistics class on its own and I would want it to be all year. I don't just want it to be one semester so I can really spend the time with these students. But I think that what we need to be teaching our students about statistics is that there isn't this recipe book procedure that you can follow like you shouldn't just be plugging everything into I don't know what software you guys use but a lot of people that I know use SPSS where you just plug it into SPSS click some buttons and you get your output yeah and that's fine but you need to be able to think about what this output is showing you right so I think that I would want to spend time on um, interpreting your results and interpreting your data versus just seeing like p is less than 0.05 yes (laughs) Definitely been, uh, definitely done that before. I've also done it. Everyone has done it. (laughs) I think it also goes to setting up your research. I mean, your research design too is is crucial. I mean, I think what a lot of people do, and I know I've, I think we've all done this at some point or another, but you've heard stories of it where people go to like a statistician and have them run their results after the fact. When I've been taught to, and this has actually been pretty helpful in some stuff I'm doing now, is to consult a statistician before you start your study because they can help you actually lay out the appropriate study design for the analysis that you're trying to accomplish. But I think people do that postdoc and it kind of leads to sometimes some inappropriate analysis. Not that it's necessarily done on purpose, but it's just they were just sort of ignorant to what should have been done correctly in the first place. I love that you're bringing up the idea of having a statistician look at your data or help with your analysis in the first place. Is that common practice in your universities? Uh, it kind of depends, honestly. Yeah. I mean, some some PhD researchers in the States are very good. I mean, they're good statisticians on their own, but I know some stuff that I'm working on now that's sort of novel and the data is kind of novel to me that I've never directly analyzed before. I actually consulted a statistician 
uh, I have never it. heard of someone consulting a statistician. And that's one of the things, I think it's Andy Field who said this in a podcast and in his like stats textbooks is that it is crazy that we are running our own statistics with no formal statistical training. Like yeah. what you take one class in your undergrad and you're good to go and run the statistics that are potentially informing policy when you take one class. Like right. that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, some of the stats I've learned has been through YouTube videos and tutorials. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So I, think, I think Jason and I actually took, we took a couple of stat courses outside of our department uh, just to kind of understand it a little bit more. So that's great. And yeah. more people need to be looking out to do things like that. It's super, it's super important because when you're reading research and trying to provide information to a clinician, if the stats are running correctly, the results can be very not appropriate and the recommendations cannot be appropriate either. So I think researchers really need to have a good statistics background. I try to learn as much stats as I can, even in my free time, mm-hmm. just because I think it's that, I think it's that important. Like you said, Laura, for like changing policy and different things like that. Are you working like in a clinical population? Like the data, the results can really have significant impact on the patients or athletes or whoever that we're seeing. So it's, really important to have a strong stats background. But if you don't necessarily understand the stats fully, I would definitely recommend consulting with statisticians because they are, are very good at it. And they can they can just help you out in terms of forming your research questions and your your outputs and things like that. So, so this, this is a good follow-up to our, our next question. Um so so Laura, just like just like you, your your background, I actually also wanted to go to physical therapy school and, and I ended up not going. But an, an important aspect of this is like, you know, the research we do, we want practitioners to apply it, right? That's uh, a big portion of what we, why we try to do what we do is to basically have some practical value for, for it. And so when we look at these clinicians, again, like we mentioned, maybe one stat class, maybe no stat classes that they've taken, they read the research and, you know, they, they may not have a stats background. Um, and so what they do is they take the results in the conclusion section pretty much at face value. Um, and so I guess my question is, is there a better way for us to, or, or, you know, in general uh, to educate these individuals to perhaps, you know, proceed with caution, uh, you know, and, and a lot of our sort of evidence-based um, suggestions that we give. Yeah, definitely. And I love that you use the term proceed with caution, because I think that is so important when it comes to trying to inform practitioners that, if you have one single study with like 10 people per group, I think it's a little bit problematic that people are then trying to go out to clinicians and say, you should be doing this. I think that we need to pump the brakes a little bit, wait for some meta-analyses, and then see if this is robust enough as a whole to come out in these meta-analyses. And then you can go to your um, practitioners that isn't always possible. Like meta-analyses can be hard to come by, especially in newer fields. Yeah. So I think that I don't know if there is a good solution. Like we need to be a little bit more careful about trying to draw these huge conclusions off of our single studies. But then again, we want our single studies to be important and informative. So we're kind of between a rock and a hard place, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think it's, I think one important thing I think that us as researchers need to do first and foremost is make sure our studies are adequately powered to actually mm-hmm. detect reasonable changes versus just a noise. 
I think that's one big thing. Doing a priori power analyses are important, but they're not really done a lot, honestly. In a lot of the research that I read, it's just uh, not. Or really... they're done incorrectly. Right, exactly. So I think that, that's one important thing. I think it's also just like, you know, we want to make sure that our study, you know, you know, it's it's important. You know, the research that we do is important, but also to temper the findings, Laura. Like you said, if you have a study with only a, an N of twenty people, you know, not necessarily the most representative of a population. So I think tempering the findings too, and and I think also suggesting. I think we need to do a better job of giving better recommendations for future research to build off of the, the research that we just published. Cause I think a lot of it is just very generic, like, Oh yeah, a research study, like it was cross-sectional. It should be longitudinal, like, of course, but like maybe a little bit more specific. Cause I think that way it gives like a clinician or somebody who's actually reading the research, a better idea of what hasn't been done yet, as opposed to being like all encompassing, like this research study found this and it translates to this, this and that, which isn't necessarily the case uh, in most studies. So I just think tempering the expectations, uh, I think we do a little better job of. So, but Laura, just kind of, kind of jumping off of the, those points there. And again, thanks for your, your thoughts and comments on all this. It's really, really good stuff. But what's some of the uh, uh, current and future research uh, that's ongoing in your lab and that you're working on specifically right now? Yeah, so my dissertation is going to focus on human-robot and human-human interactions and whether we can leverage those to improve motor skill learning. That is very broad, and I say my dissertation is going to be because I haven't been able to do anything because of right. COVID. Um, so that is what I'm interested in. We have other grad students in the lab doing some um projects with feedback characteristics and how that can affect learning. My supervisor is very open to, as long as it falls under the umbrella of motor learning, let's learn about it together. That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, to finish up, Laura, what's, um, what's one practical takeaway you think a, I won't even pre preface as a practitioner, maybe like even students that are listening um, can take from your sort of expertise. So I think that the main takeaway should be to spend more time in the research planning phase. We are so excited to get going and start our data collection, like myself included. Like we are just so jazzed and excited about our research, which is so important. But in order to make our research more informative or potentially have better outcomes, we need to spend a little bit more time figuring things out ahead of time. Because I think that so many people will be like, yeah, I think I'll collect around 20 participants. And then they will collect the 20, let's say a conference comes up and have to analyze their data for an abstract. PSL 7.05, awesome, stop. Like, yeah. <laughs> that is very problematic. And I can't say that I have not done that. <laughs> I think we're all um, in the same boat. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that just spending more time in the planning phase, and this is also something that I'm continuing to learn. I look back at my first pre-registration that I worked on, and it is the least informative thing you could ever see. Like, we only described our retention analyses. We didn't even touch on our acquisition analyses. We didn't touch on our, like, psychological construct analyses. And these were just things that we had been thinking about as we were planning our research, but 
sort of slip through the cracks of the pre-registration. So we're learning as we go to make sure that we are spending even more time in the pre-planning phase to make sure that even something as, I don't want to say um, insignificant because I think that pre-registering is very important, but that's not directly related to your project. And even that needs to be thought out a little bit more ahead of time. But you're exactly right. Like we all want to be publishing. We all want to be doing research right away. And it's hard to pull back a little bit and really think about these things ahead of time. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a tough, I don't want to say necessarily a tough situation, but like a lot of, at least when you get past like PhD into faculty, like a lot is relying on how much you can publish, like your output. And if you can publish, you know, 10 papers a year, like you're in great shape. But I think it's that it's balancing between being productive and also, you know, really taking a little bit of a step back and making sure that we're developing and designing high quality study. It's a give and a take, you know, the more you you're publish, exactly right. It's, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult, there's not really a great answer for it right now, but um, you know, Laura, again, we appreciate your, your thoughts on this because it's important for, you know, people who are still in their graduate schooling and people who are, you know, starting to transition out of it. You know, I also, I, I also think that one, one thing that is really important is to do more uh, work that's like, uh, that can be replicated. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, replication work. And then, and also, I, I know, I know this is kind of frowned upon, but like more cross institutional uh, work is really important. Like, I, how cool would it be if we, you know, Jason, you're, 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 you're in Atlanta, or you're in Emory, right? So like, you know, you and I did like a study where we, you know, use like the same sort of, uh, I think protocol, whatever, and whatever it may be, but like those cross um, institutional studies that I think are, are much more needed. Uh, usually it's just one person doing it and, and other people tagging along. Right. So, mm-hmm. and then replication, I think is important. Uh, I mean, you know, just doing like the external focus stuff, right. It's like, that should be, should be replicated as it has been. Uh, but you know, the certain other constructs should be sort of, um, dealt with that same, same perspective, but yeah, I guess it's a, a lot of things for us to work on. <laughs> Jeff, I actually have a question as to why you said that you feel that cross institutional research is frowned upon. Cause I personally think that that is part of the answer. No, I think it's part of the answer as well. I just don't see it happening. Um, I agree. A lot, which is which, and I, I then okay. Then I would say I assume that it's frowned upon because I don't see it happening. Um, I've never attempted to do it, so I, I don't know. Um, but I think that would be the next step. Um, I one thousand percent agree. Yeah. If, because part of the issue is resources and time. Yeah. But let's say that you want to study for three hundred people. That could take you a year to collect. But if yeah. you and two other labs are working on that, that that's only a hundred participants each. Yeah. And we also get more, I guess all, I think it was like everyone gets a publication. It's it's good for all of us at the end of the day. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Laura, before we let you go, um, if people want to reach out to you, what are some good ways to connect with you? Yeah. So I can definitely reached on Twitter. My handle is at underscore Laura St. Germain. Um, I'm also happy to be reached by email or chat at conferences when those can happen again. <laughs> like I, I always say to people that research and statistics is my favorite conversation topic. It is so fun to talk about. So if people want to reach out, I am more than open to it. 
Great. Yeah, sounds good. I will appreciate appreciate you coming on, spending some time with us. I think all the information was very informative, um, especially for our listeners who are mostly you know students and stuff like that. So uh, appreciate your time and and hope uh, everything is uh, you're safe and everything stays well and and hopefully you know soon enough we'll be we'll be at conferences again. I know NASPA next year is in Hawaii, so that should be nice. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. But thanks again, Laura. I appreciate it. Thanks, Great, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah.